0: you're listening to an mpavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts
1: Good evening, everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us in an Imagine X Sona event, Unearthing the Unseen. I'm Kimberly Ho, uh, one of the Imagine Committee members who is also an architecture graduate, and we're very, very excited to have you here. I'm joined alongside by Blake, and I'll let him introduce himself before continuing the event.
2: Hey, guys. I'm Blake. Uh, I'm the national vice president for Sona. Um, Yeah, awesome to have you here. Uh, before we get in, we'll do acknowledgement of country. So, we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded land we gather on today. Rwondri, Woiwurrung, and Boon Boonwurrung Boon peoples of the eastern uh And we pay respect to the elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.
1: And without further ado, so tonight we will have our two Imagine and Sona members, Oscar and Amina, to chair the conversation, and we'll leave the introduction to our guests, so please enjoy the conversation. Hello.
0: Thank you for that introduction, and thank you to all our speakers. Um, Dan, do you want to start off by introducing yourself and then work our way down?
3: Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name's Daniel Moore. I'm the state manager of the Australian Institute of Architects here in Victoria. And I have my own small practice called Open Creative Studio.
4: Do you want to take it away? (laughs) Hi, I'm Amy Muir and I uh, run a practice called Muir Architecture and I'm a lecturer at RMIT University. Hello, um, my name is Gumji Kang and I'm one of
5: the architects with a multidisciplinary studio, Snoweda, and I'm also a lecturer at Melbourne
1: University. Hi, I'm Christine Phillips, I'm a non-Indigenous architect and I have a practice called Upla with Tanya Davich and I also lead the Yulin Chwilum Lab at RMIT where I'm a
2: senior lecturer. <laughs> uh,
0: I'm Amina, I'm second year bachelor student RMIT architecture.
2: I didn't, I didn't know we were doing this. Um, I didn't either. This is <laughs> a loss. Better uh, than my name's Oscar. I'm an architect at the edition office, and I'm also a, a lecturer at Melbourne Uni as well. All right, so um, I think we're really lucky this evening to have such a fantastic uh, panel, so thanks, guys, for being here. And thanks also to all the students who've um, put their work up. It's really lovely to have it here. And um, we were saying just before that uh, because the weather's not so good, we've just got the kind of die-hard fans here, so thanks, all of you guys, for coming as well. So... Um, the focus of our discussion this evening is post-occupancy, and we can understand post-occupancy as a survey or study of architecture following its completion. Um, but as a starting point for our conversation, we had a look at the etymology of the, word, of the phrase uh, post-occupancy, and we thought this might be of interest to our discussion. So this phrase is made up of two parts, post implying after the completion of event, and occupation the event. Uh, implying the inhabitation of people. In this way, post-occupancy doesn't really follow the same structure as other similar phrases. For instance, post-war or post-modernism, more relevant to us, have uh, a more logical relationship between prefix and subject. Post-occupancy, however, doesn't quite make sense in this logic, um, almost implying that occupation has already been finished or that a building is awaiting demolition. So this tension between pre and post um, was something that we found quite exciting, and perhaps more interesting for our discussion might be uh, the understanding of during occupation rather than post-occupation, and there's a bit of kind of linguistic tension with this, so there's a lot of understanding about what pre and post means, but not a lot of understanding of what during means. Um, on some kind of literary forums, there's, there's a bit of argument about this as well, um, and what those places have kind of come up with is that intra is probably the correct prefix for um, during. And so for our conversation, we'd like to pose that the idea of intra-occupation might form a more reciprocal relationship between architect and occupant, and perhaps could be a more productive way of thinking about occupation for our work. So I guess we'd like to um, have a kind of broad-ranging discussion today and, and try and unpack this idea of intra-occupancy or a more reciprocal relationship between architect and occupant. So we'll ask each of the panellists to kind of comment on this, but maybe Amy will kind of throw to you first. Is, is there a project um, specifically in your practice or is there a kind of response to this idea of intra-occupancy rather than post-occupancy that you'd like to put forward?
4: Oh, I was... Um, <clears throat> I was just going to say. I think the the interesting thing about this topic is when we talk in practice about post occupancy, it it the first thing I think of is a form and a survey, and that just for me my 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 mind just starts to glaze over and it it hurts a lot. Um, whereas when we start to think about what you're proposing or, you know, the the broader forums are talking about in relation to the the notion of intra. It then starts to allow us to focus on what we do as architects, designers, thinkers, um, creators is, from day one, we are talking about post occupancy in the very nature of the fact that we engage with clients, stakeholders, um, Etc. So it is. It's it's an ever present thing, and I think I would argue that every project we engage with, and I would suggest that students, um, you are thinking about the end game from the beginning. You may not necessarily know what that is at the very beginning, but you're certainly. The way that we uh, engage with ideas is through imagination and imagination is a a visual thing. It's through perspective. It's through an idea of how we understand space. And so we are, from the very beginning, understanding what that might be. Uh, So it's not a form, it's not a survey. It's actually an understanding of how people might relate to a condition or something.
2: Christine, you look like you've. Got
4: <laughs> Thanks, Oscar. Uh,
1: I mean, Amy's absolutely right, and I think one thing in having thought about this topic, um, <coughs> I think also it's about we need to think about who the occupants are, and the longevity of a of a, a building or a project that we are designing for. So we see so many students already and practitioners thinking about who the occupants are beyond our client and the users as well. Um, and, I mean, we can talk about it in more detail later, but f- I think we really need to think about architecture on a, in a more long-term fashion, um, who we are designing for, how they en- are engaging with the architecture we are designing and producing um, and, you know, also beyond people, we have animals and insects and country and all sorts of things that go beyond the form that Amy speaks to that I also sort of think, you know, I have a similar kind of reaction and I think that's really important as architects that we think about how – who we are designing for in a long-term condition because architecture has – I mean, I think a good building has many lives. I mean, obviously, depending on the program, it's not always the case, but a good building has many lives and will change use and will change users. And I think that's something we all need to think about.
2: Gumji, in, in your practice, there's, um, I mean, your practice is quite well known as a larger scale practice that carries out a lot of um, post-occupancy study. I think what um, these guys are beginning to indicate is that it's, it's, more, it's more than the form we've established with anti-form. Um, <laughs> more ways than one. I'd like to think uh, that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, but is there, yeah, is there a way your practice is kind of used post-occupancy in a more meaningful way than we might be kind of um, thinking about it.
5: Yeah, yeah um, I mean, I guess as Oscar alluded, so the practice um does focus a lot on the experience of architecture and also environmental impact um, that architecture does bring to the context the architecture is situated in. But largely the post-occupancy or intra-occupancy, I'm going to say, the study that we do quite regularly on all of our projects focuses on three factors so we focus on the perception the performance and the impact so there's a range of things that you can obviously look at from you know through the lenses of performance the perception and the impact but really what we're trying to gather is the first the performance is is the building really performing as we intended it to be and is it really you know doing the things that we had set out to do in terms of the environmental kind of performing, um, sort of passive design um, principles and any other uh, performance factors that we may have put in. So that's a huge impact that we gather as an information going forward with future projects. And then, obviously, the perception is a lot to do with the users. So, you know, we do a lot of work in sort of foreign countries, I'm going to say. You know, uh, Snowda is a Norwegian-based practice, so I'm going to say a practice that uh, started from Norway. So, essentially, well, every country they were designing with is a bit of a, a foreign country that we're dealing with. But the perception that we bring um, as the architecture starts to transform the environment is something that we're really keen to understand once the the building is handed over and then we sort of let go um, of the building and see how the building sort of takes um, its own life um, and form, I'm going to say. So that's a really interesting story that we always try and find uh, what happens after as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to look at that. Um, Throwing over to Dan, obviously you do a lot of work in the broader architecture community and um, with your work with the New Architects Melbourne, do you think that this is a discourse that's sort of emerging more in discussions around architecture and how the longevity of a building might vary?
3: Um, I think with New Architects Melbourne, we uh, host a lot of events where we're seeing new and emerging practices start to emerge in the community and start to take what they learnt in bigger practices uh, into their own firm. And I think once they start to actually take real projects on that are, that are their own, they start to realise that there are some delineation lines in, in time. <laughs> so on certain projects, you might get brought in and they'll get you to design a building. And then once there's a practical completion moment or the defect liability period is over... There is this very much uh, a handover moment where people say, thank you so much for your services, see you later. Uh, But then there are other um, clients where they'll say, thank you so much, we'll contact you if something goes wrong, or we might have another project down the line, or that was so great, we want to do another one. And in terms of the sort of amorphous and evolving life cycle of architecture, I think that's that is starting to emerge in that sort of new architect realm and the emerging practice realm where when we're at university, we sort of learn to design projects and get to the end of a semester and then say, that was great, I had a great learning moment, I can move on. Whereas in practice, the learning even on certain projects keeps going and going and going. And then you might actually have a project hand over to a new owner and then they love it so much they contact you and say, oh, we want to add on an extra bedroom. And then this whole other life of a building starts. So the idea of this sort of post, pre uh, and uh, intra understanding of time is, is very interesting because I think architecture is pulling new architects in realms that they weren't necessarily prepared for when they were, when they were studying or even working in other practices around Melbourne.
2: Maybe, Dan, we can, we can push you on that a little bit more. We, um, we're aware you've, you've designed a house and constructed a house for your parents. And um, if we talk about uh, intra-occupancy as a, as a study, it uh, <laughs> feels like that might be the kind of ultimate case. And it was interesting what Gumji was saying about perception as being a really key part of um, intra-occupancy study for her practice what sort of um, perceptions or uh, <laughs> feedback loop is there any kind of feedback loop you've gotten from that project being so closely kind of linked to it yourself
3: i mean feedback loop is a perfect term <laughs> i think on a on a project where you get to keep going back because even as a student we you, i guess you know we go into our projects so deeply and we learn to care for them so deeply and you get into such intense detail on our project That you know them very intimately um, and you design your buildings for very specific reasons, whether it's a view or a request from a client to have a particular piece of furniture. And we get taught to really care about all of those little moments. Now, with Thinking Paddock House from my parents, I felt like they were with me on that journey 100%. But even two or three years down the track, I'll still get a call from my mum saying, was that window meant to face the mountain like that? And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, like three months in, we had decided that. And she's like, oh, it's that's, that's lovely. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. And I think that's um that's a that's a really interesting thing that I get to experience that because some some clients do have a very hard, you know, we're walking away from, you know, thank you so much, and we're walking away. We appreciate the services you've given us. And you might not get that kind of information, um, so that's been that's been yeah very interesting. But also, uh, you know, down uh, going through the process with my parents, um, we had a lot of the conversations where a client will sometimes ask you, you know, oh this is our they'll say oh, this is our forever house in the brief, but then along the way they might also say, well when we sell it, should we design it for the next people? Like should we should we be that that particular and be that bespoke about this house for us because the next round of people who might live in this might want something that is just a three by three bedroom as opposed to having a window seat, and that was kind of good to sort of take them through that journey where we just say the next person's the next the next owner is the next owner so let's let's worry about that or let that next person worry about that and I think that's also Um, a refreshing thing to sometimes go through. Now, to each their own, you might get a client who's definitely not going to live in a building themselves and then that's another interesting um, conversation to have because not only you but also the client are talking about the needs of someone you're never going to meet and that I find is also absolutely fascinating (laughs) to to try to then meet their needs even though you you won't know them until maybe you're trying to sell off the plan or something.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting notion, isn't it? And it kind of takes us to a discussion about reuse or um, purpose of occupation and how we can maybe design for kind of multiple, uh, multiple different occupations through a kind of maybe this kind of feedback loop that you're that you're talking about. Has anyone um, on the panel kind of, um, I guess? Felt like a project that they have designed or have been a part of at, at one point has then been kind of misused or appropriated in any way or used in a way that's um, kind of unexpected. I mean, even with a house for your parents, I, I know that there's projects that I've been a part of where um, you kind of go back and you're like, "Oh no, that's not supposed. You're not supposed to. That's not supposed to be like that." So,
3: I'll, just, I'll answer this one quickly, so we can move on to other people. But yeah, like they, my parents forced me to design a big garage for them. And they said, we're getting old now. We ne- the, gar- the cars need a home so that when we get out of our cars, we don't get cold going from the cars to the house. And then on the day that they moved in, they filled it with boxes and they've never been able to park a car in there. So that was one thing where I was... I was fixing the sensor light so that when you walked into the garage, the light would come on and my brother has this very clear memory of me trying to adjust the sensor light being like, this wasn't designed for bloody boxes, it was designed for cars to be in and would turn on. So yeah, that's one example.
0: Um, Yeah, I think Danny sort of touched on this from a student point of view and how as students, you're sort of in that mindset of this is the building when it's done, time to move on to the next project and next studio maybe to anyone on the panel who's who's got some teaching experience, how do you feel that this topic is sort of brought up in a teaching environment, if at all, and how do you think it needs to change if it does?
1: I think students are actually pretty good at understanding how a building can be more than just an object or the built fabric. Um, I ran a studio last semester with partner with Naui Carolyn Briggs, a Bunwanong elder, and my co-teacher, Stasinos Mansus. And um, (coughs) it was actually for a site at the testing grounds, former testing grounds site um, for an Indigenous cultural centre. Um, And I thought the students were pretty good at thinking about beyond just the occupants of the building, but thinking about how a building can enable ongoing opportunities. And I find that very exciting. So how can architecture provide employment opportunities in an ongoing fashion, for example? And I think um, – I reckon Nonda Katsalidis was a really good architect that we all learnt from in the 90s of how we might be able to co-design with people from other fields and how a building might be able to operate in a long, long sort of long-term fashion. And so he designed buildings... Um, partnered with artists, for example. There was that tower he did in, I think it's the Lonsdale Street, where there was the big sort of art billboard. So, it provided an ongoing opportunity for artists, right? And that's a very powerful thing. So, a building is not just the built fabric. How can a building enable ongoing opportunities for other people, such as artists, Um, In the studio I did last semester, students were thinking about um, lessons we learned from Palawa architect Sarah Lynn Reese, who talks about how can we think of country as our client, right? That's a very powerful thing. So, it's not just thinking about the users as people, Um, in which the clients have provided a brief for, but how a building can enable opportunities for, as I mentioned before, insects, birds, all kinds of animals, but also opportunities for indigenous communities, for example, through um, ongoing cultural and employment opportunities. And I find that incredibly exciting. Right, and I think that's where we are really at in architecture, and not just within the indigenous space but within all kinds of spaces. How a building can have this sort of vibrant, live, ongoing, um, you know, really vibrant. Um, space where there might be curatorial opportunities or there might be employment opportunities that are ongoing beyond just the handover point of where you hand over the keys to the clients. Um, And I I, I think that's where we really need to be thinking in design at the moment.
2: Yeah, Amy, I guess the same kind of question for you. You're also an educator um, and uh, teaching at university. Is there a do you, any of your students kind of focus on or do you think they should focus on occupancy or post-occupancy in a more kind of meaningful way? Or does it come into the studio at all?
4: Yeah, I think it, it comes into the, the way that the studios are taught. Um, I think sort of touching on what Christine's has talked about, we talk a lot about uh, the notion of civic generosity and responsibility from a civic Perspective that we have um, as architects, and we do carry—we literally carry a responsibility um, when we're negotiating with clients, when we're analysing a brief, when we're interpreting a brief—to um, ensure that that is giving back. When it's particularly when we talk about civic architecture, and uh, that. Talks about amenity, but it also talks about how people will use a space. And uh, the idea that spaces um, need to be, I remember when I first started teaching, I talked a lot about places, marketplaces, you know, and um, uh, South Melbourne Market has a car park on its roof, so yes, okay, tick, useful, but the market's only open four days a week massive tract of land that is actually redundant for a very significant amount of time each week and so this idea that spaces also need to have a life of their own that allow them to be 24-hour spaces spaces that can accommodate for that and so i think you know when we then go back to thinking about user experience it's like well how do we ensure the safety of people? How do we ensure that people feel comfortable enough in a space that they will occupy it rather than not occupy it? And there is a fine line with all of that. Um, so I think um, uh, in teaching, that that's definitely one of the... Part of the agenda is sort of talking about that and how that then um, translates into um, built outcomes and and how we sort of are constantly thinking about that responsibility as a driver
2: um, and I guess um, i think, I think all of those points are really interesting and it's interesting that we're kind of um, we're kind of uncovering that even from architecture school, we're almost being kind of taught to empathise a a lot more with a kind of broader sense of occupation rather than a kind of maybe standard sense of of post-occupation. To that end, Gumji, I think you were talking um, earlier about kind of three modes of assessing post-occupancy and this idea of assessing perception of occupants, I think is a really uh, interesting one and perhaps is slightly more kind of squishy than the others you know it's quite slightly harder to kind of make tangible in your practice is that um, like I guess how, how do you kind of use that that feedback and what sort of feedback do you do you get
5: I mean so the the range of feedback that we get um, trying to assess the the category of perception as you said it is a pretty squishy category and it's the, the fun thing about it is every time we try and do a post-occupancy, we essentially go out to everyone in the team and go, how do we assess this within this project and so on and so forth? So, for example, um, so one of our key projects that does have a, a pretty extensive um, post-occupancy study and does happen quite regularly is Times Square in New York. Um, and that was through the study of really understanding the users both from the local, international and sort of, you know, the perception of Times Square as a tourist but also um, as a a local, say, a a driver going through and trying to understand this transformation that Times Square did go through um, at the times of the construction as well. But at the same time, we also talked about um, maybe continuing on what Amy touched on in terms of civic generosity. So we thought it was quite interesting when at the time, the Times Square um, transformation was actually proposed. There was prevailing uh, idea that this road or the plaza space had to be largely dedicated to vehicles because it had been for such a long time as a carriageway, but then when you actually looked at the trends of how the spaces were being used, it was, it had to be predominantly dedicated to pedestrians and people sitting around. So because of that study, you know, that sort of fed into how the uses and the programs were generated. And then that really gave um, a lot of strength to the post-occupancy study in terms of the, I guess, how much time people were spending Um, And then quite surprisingly, um, something that we do always have to include is the sort of economic and financial viability um, of the project as well. So, we also talked about how there was a a general rental impact. So, um, in terms of the commercial activities around the Times Square, people were so worried that if you got rid of the roads, if you got rid of the car parks, the the retail was going to die. The shops were going to um, be jeopardise essentially but then it was on the flip side they had way more patrons coming through they had way more activities um, in terms of both retail and hospitality activities so in a way that the city then could use that information to um, argue for more um, public activation more occupation of public plaza spaces and so on so it really continued to grow um, that a post-occupancy study and is still – is essentially an ongoing study.
1: (laughs) And I think it's the expertise or the the obligation of us as architects to actually fulfil those civic obligations because it might not come up in your brief. The clients might not actually ask for it, but it is our obligation responsibility to fulfil that – civic generosity, I think, and I think it's something students really need to be mindful of.
4: I was just going to say in relation to um, this notion of the power of the survey, if we call it the form, that piece of paper, that boring piece of paper, but the power of that form means that you can actively advocate for change and for evolution. And so that, that when we talk about post-occupancy, intra occupancy, um, that becomes a really, really important, powerful tool for allowing things to, to continue. And and I think it, I was actually going to say the other thing that is uh, equally important to civic and generosity, I would say, in the, in the civic space is how we use an opportunity through architecture, through buildings, through infrastructure, through landscape, is to advocate for us people, communities, um, animals, uh, the way that we understand and and, uh, relate to country, they all become conversations and uh, that can only help us evolve, I would hope. If we have the data,
1: to back that up, it makes
4: it much easier. Numbers help, (laughs) for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I'm... One of the projects I think does this really well is um, ARM's design for the chancellery chancellery building at Monash, where um, if you don't know what a university chancellery is, it's the senior executive offices of a university and you get the vice chancellor, all the chancellors and traditionally or typically it's a very private kind of a program but i really loved the way arm pushed that program to become to offer that civic generosity back to the cam campus back to the students so instead of it just being a very exclusive private building they did things like they provided a you know a beautiful public promenade and they had landscape architects where um, who really thought about how students could be invited to sit and have lunch outside this building and how you might invite the whole of the campus to this seemingly exclusive building. But then when we think about the um, intra occupancy they also did some very clever things like the promenade that they had around the building, um, it it was a series of columns where um, it was a long-term project. So, post the completion of the building, the columns would one by one get designed by different artists to come in and actually design one of the, the columns. And I think that is a super fabulous initiative where it's a sort of long-term vision of how you might enable and provide opportunities for people like artists to come in and actually come in and, you know, be part of that building in a long-term manner, but also give back to the campus and think about the relationship to the campus and what that student interface was. And, you know, there's tons of great examples, but that required – the expertise of a practice and the architects to actually think beyond the brief and beyond the specific uses of the building to enable that civic generosity.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it all touched on that idea of obligations that architects have to consider the sort of post use or entry use of a space. And I think it sort of posed that question for me. Um, Dan, you sort of touched on this of, how do you design a space and how far into the future do you consider how that space will be used? You know, use that example of designing a house and the um, clients being concerned about the next person who uses the space. And so I think I want to ask, how far into the future do you feel obligated to consider the occupants of a building you design?
3: Um. I think it's really important just in terms of the sustainability training that, that I received down at UTAS to sort of think about the cradle to cradle or cradle to grave side of architecture that we want our buildings to, to go on I think as long as they're useful or to adapt them over time but eventually there will be a period where they're probably going to be gone. Um, so it's really important to consider where your buildings are going to go at the end of their life. So I think that's probably at the highest priority in terms of timeline. Um, I know we're often designing for our buildings to stay standing forever, but just the reality of that is highly unlikely, I would say. (laughs) I'd say most buildings end up um, being torn down at some point. So I think that's sort of one of the ultimate things that's always worth considering, and I think that's a major obligation. So considering can your materials be recycled, can they be reused... Um, you know, what's their impact on carbon, you know, uh, can they actually have some sort of positive outcome in terms of carbon or can they be regenerative? That would be, you know, an ideal outcome if they can actually add to a positive, um, you know, impact to the environment, to country. Um, So I think that's, that's a major thing that we should be thinking about now. When it comes to people, I think we should be thinking as much as we can about the needs of of as many people as we can and that's one way that we can try to make sure that as many people can use our buildings as possible um yeah so i think that's that's the two main considerations that i would have in my practice is thinking about what the actual physical elements of the building um are and then also you know what the operational um, impact of the building is and and how many people can actually enjoy our buildings because there's a lot of things that we can do to make sure that we're not trying, well, we're not um, inhibiting people through some of the design choices that we might make.
2: Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think those that idea of reuse or adaptability or or kind of designing with longevity in mind is, is, is super valuable. Um, I'm conscious that as architects, one of the things that we um, kind of encounter with every project is that every project has a kind of unique brief and um, you know, a lot of the projects we've already discussed, from Times Square to a to a kind of house for your parents, are kind of at either end of that spectrum, and we're asked to tackle those those entirely different things. Um, but really, uh, I think with intra occupancy or post occupancy, um, I guess it's it's really about what we can take from one project to the next, or what what can kind of continue. I remember being told that. Um, different to other forms of design architecture as a kind of prototype every time, you know, every, every project is kind of entirely different. And I wondered, uh, Amy, in your, in your practice life, um, I guess how you decide what you continue from one project to another, even if the briefs are quite different, and what you kind of choose to kind of redo anew every time.
4: Um. Yeah, I think uh, the the approach to how you design, the process to design, uh, how you read site is the consistent theme um, and the tools that you use or the practice uses, I should say, uh, have become, I suppose, more and more refined each project and they They determine effectively the outcome of the design. um so they they get applied to any project. So whether it's residential, um a landscape intervention, a public building, um, multi-res, it's the same the same process goes through to get an outcome. And uh, I suppose we've become quite rigorous about trying to stick to those rules in order to get an outcome. In terms of what happens at the end, <laughs> as in the, the, the things that stick or the things that might be familiar in each project, it's generally material, palette um, is fairly familiar. Um, and I suppose it's also, um, uh, I would suggest, there's an obsession with light and understanding how um, light might be used if it's it's an internalised project or a project that contains light. Uh, It's very much sort of understanding how to use that as an opportunity. Once again, thinking about those who are occupying the space and what that might bring to the occupant. Um, in terms of experiencing that. And it's also the connection to landscape is always at the forefront. It's, um, it drives a lot of decisions about how projects are conceived in plan, the, the landscape and the, the, um, the built form, whatever that might be. Uh, those two never are not in conversation. They are it's, it's impossible for them not to be. And as a trained... Interior designer before becoming an architect, I, I always used to think that the interior was the thing that I was, you know, going between architecture and the interior. And I, I now could almost say the interior is a byproduct of the conversation between architecture and landscape and uh the, the formal decisions that get made. Um, not that the interior is left out of the conversation, but I, I can recognise now that a lot of the decisions that are being made internal are a direct relationship to landscape and um, to the um, some of the decisions. And, and once again, this comes back to what's the brief? How do you react to it? And I would suggest that we have a responsibility every time we get a brief not to Uh, execute the brief, but to question the brief. And so in questioning the brief, a lot of those formal kind of responses come about and questioning site, formal responses come about and they then uh, infiltrate interior architecture landscape.
2: Yeah, um, great. I think, Gumji, I mean, I think the same, obviously at a completely, obviously at an entirely kind of different scale, you know, you work on really, really some really, really kind of large projects. How and how does a practice of the, the scale that, that you work at choose how to kind of what to kind of take on or what to kind of take from one project one project to the next?
5: Um, I mean, to correct that though, we don't always do large projects. So we Times time
2: Square. I mean,
5: yeah, Times Square, but we also do a chair. <laughs> so. Um, so, I think it's it, really
4: quite small though. Isn't it? I mean, it's not <laughs> really
2: that big. That's true that's, the the r- true. that's big. true. The interventions.
5: Um, yeah, in the scheme of things. <laughs> but I think it's really the brief. So, we really question the brief quite a lot. And in the process of doing so, sometimes it annoys a lot of clients. <laughs> so, it, I guess, you know, to bring the clients on the journey um, of this designing whatever it is we're designing at the time. Um, I think through the process of really questioning the briefs, we start to understand whether the clients could really start to be on the journey together with us or not. Um, Because we start to ask questions around sort of civic generosity, the sustainability, designing with countries. And, you know, I think sometimes uh, because they are starting to um, sort of bubble the thoughts that the clients may not have thought of. Um, the clients generally, the ones that respond really well to us are the ones that are, um, you know, asking the questions with us rather than essentially sort of challenging the questions that we're trying to bring along um, through the design process at the
2: moment. And and that kind of comes from past past experience or that's kind of taken as an approach from past projects, is that...?
5: Yeah, I mean, I guess the the way the practice had started, um, you know, so 30 years ago, so I wasn't born then. But <laughs> um, it started with competition. So it is really difficult in the current climate, I have to um, admit. But the the process of um, Snowden design methodology was really from open question. So a lot of the projects that really catapulted um, uh Snow era as a practice was all these open questions um that could really thrive um as a an open brief, and I think that led us to us um understanding our design process of going through these kind of multiple iterations of different questions and um questioning the briefs and so on yeah did yeah. I answer the question
0: <laughs> i think so yeah, That's yeah. Pre- pretty good pretty Enough. good answer um You're sort of touching on that idea um, of innovation and, like, entering those competitions. And I think it's interesting because as a student, you're sort of finding your feet and, like, testing out and branching out. Do you think you still have those opportunities to an extent while in practice to innovate and continue to go beyond just a project that might be built?
5: Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Um, Every single project, whether it is, a um, you know, 300 apartments (laughs) – in Sydney or, again, um, a hiker's hut um, out in the mountains, there's always an opportunity. I think um, as architects, uh, so we obviously tend to focus a lot on the object of the um, the building, but at the same time, once you start to broaden um, your perspectives, it really comes down to whatever focus that you might bring to the design. And I think as Amy touched on, whatever we bring um, to the design process, I think it's really the attitude um, and we always say what we learn from the, the past project isn't necessarily whether the form was successful or whether the we made a beautiful object, but it's the attitude that we continued all the way through and that we can continue to innovate and we can continue to design meaningful experiences, however small or however big um the architecture maybe
0: yeah um i want to ask christine since you do run or you have run a design studio do you feel like that attitude is carried into your design studio where you're sort of pushing students to like find their own attitude and their own way of thinking to implement into other designs or do you sort of take on the attitudes of prompting them to continually reinvent and rechange how they think
1: about design i think it's a definitely a bit of both there um I mean, I'm always excited to see how open architecture students are, whether it's in the bachelor's or the master's, in thinking about, okay, how do we push a brief beyond um, what we've been asked to do? And in a lot of the studios I run, we are working with real briefs and real clients. And sometimes the client will come to you with an idea, but it's actually really important for us to provide alternate opportunities because, you know, people come to us with our expertise and our knowledge and they don't always have the ideas. So, I think um, students are really good at that and hopefully they can carry that on in their practice. And they also, I think um, – I'm very interested in how students can push the limits of what an architect can do in practice beyond the building, beyond the built form, thinking about experience, thinking about ongoing opportunities. All these things we've all been talking about can absolutely be explored within the architecture education space.
2: Yeah, I I think so. And I think the one of the things about the teaching and I think about several of the practices that you all have is, um, and, and I think it's linked to kind of occupancy or thinking about occupancy, is this idea of collaboration. And obviously in the studio, you know, you have a teaching partner and you collaborate with the teaching partner. And Amy, I know in your practice, obviously... Um, there's been some fantastic work that's come out of, of collaboration as well. How do you guys kind of think about this? I mean, question for either or, or, or both. How do you kind of think about collaboration in that sense and how does that kind of inform inform your work or your practice?
1: I, I feed off collaboration. I love to work with other people um, and not just other architects but – I work a lot with uh, Indigenous elders, but um, also with artists. I mean, I did with my work with Upla and Tanya Davich. We've worked on all you know all sorts of collabor collaborations from people, you know, organisations like Vision Australia, where we explored how you might experience the city from the perspective of a. Um, a blind person or a person who's vision impaired. Um, And, you know, I think there's just so much to learn from other disciplines, other fields, and I reckon we do okay at that in in the realm of architecture.
4: Um, Yeah, I'm a big fan of Collaboration. I, d- I feel like we should invent a new word, though. There's there needs to be because we use it a lot, and it would be nice to come up with a new word to, to talk about how wonderful it is. Um, but uh, yeah, no, uh, we uh, share a studio space with Open Work, and um, we've done that for many years now. So, and when Mark and I collaborate on uh, a few projects, we talk a lot because a lot of the uh, being architecture and landscape. Uh, you know, who did what, blah, blah, blah. But we always, I think the, the thing that we recognise from the very beginning is that um, neither of us are necessarily interested in the thing that we're trained in. We're actually more interested in what they do and, you know, vice. and so this conversation just becomes like a, a bit of a soup and there is no delineation between um, architecture, landscape, anything. Like it just, it is what it is. And so I think that the opportunities for really um, uh, rich conversations, but also conversations that are, you know, um, backwards forwards and um, knowing that when you um, land on something, whoever lands on it or wherever the conversation lands is the right thing. Like there's a general consensus and it doesn't matter where it came from or what it is, it just is. And I think that 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 is the most powerful thing about a a collaboration. But I think that if I think about also broadening that conversation beyond discipline, um, uh, once again, Mark and I um, working on the family violence memorial um, with our practices and that was, uh, we still talk about that experience as being quite extraordinary when we talk about collaboration because from day one in the room we were working, we had um, Sarah Lynn Rees was on our team as well uh, in terms of providing Indigenous um, consultation. We had three uh, before the land was um, confirmed as Wawundry. We had three language groups that we were consulting with um, for the piece of land that the memorial was on. Uh, We had uh, representatives from victim survivors and they were in the room from schematic design all the way through to construction and so that was extraordinary and they are, I mean, you know, we still pick up the phone and have chats to them um, about everyday life um, and how the memorials is and... Uh, they were incredibly important people in that team, not only as advocates, but they sort of they allowed us to uh, have confidence with a very very fragile topic and a very very fragile space. And um, they were incredibly generous. And then, City of Melbourne and Department of Premier and Cabinet Office for Women. Once again, very, very powerful people in the room. Not powerful in terms of powerful, but as in um, very good advocates for what what the memorial was. And so it was a, a room full of people who... Um, cared but came from very different perspectives and so those various perspectives uh, will only ever allow a project to be more than maybe what it was as a brief, an initial brief. Um, It can never be one person, it can never be one team, it's, you know, and we often talk about this in education, is we're being trained As architects, as an individual at university, it seems like we're an individual, but we know that it takes thousands of people to build buildings and um, they can only ever be as good as they are based on the team and based on all those people coming together to do a collective thing.
1: Relationships? I don't know. I mean, I think more it goes beyond collaboration because you speak to all the Victims that you form relationships with um, is more than just a collaboration, but it's really about building and forming and
4: maintaining those relationships. Hundred percent. And I, yeah, and I would say that that is one of our biggest roles. Like, if we think about what we do every day, it is communicating, it is negotiating, it is building relationships, it is listening it is trying not to cry, it is, you know, so there's, yeah.
2: Well, I think that's actually a, a kind of really lovely sentiment uh, to kind of end our conversation on and it's been quite a, a broad-ranging conversation but I think we've, um, we've covered a, a fair bit of ground and um, that sentiment that really a lot of our job is about um, relationships and empathising with whether it's clients or collaborators um, I think that's a really kind of great way to end. So, um, I hope you all kind of could join me and thank uh, our panel for giving up their time and their great thoughts. So, thank you. Thanks, Gunn. I don't think we... Are we doing audience questions or are we? are we... We can. Okay. Any is
0: questions is, from the audience?
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So... We've got a bit of time for some audience questions, and I know there are some students uh, in the audience as well. Is there anyone that has a question for our?
1: And while you're cooking panel. up your questions, I just want to congratulate all the students who actually mm. submitted work and exhibited tonight, because it's a really great opportunity and a fantastic public space. And so, well done.
4: Yes.
2: right yes
0: hi
4: everyone. thanks for that um conversation. It was really uh really enlightening um, range of topics um I was wondering with the um discussion around post occupancy evaluation or kind of analyzing um a space or a project after or while it's being um while it's being inhabited, if um, that work has led to any particular new opportunities. So, if you've leveraged on that kind of post-occupancy to actually create something new or create a new beginning for a project.
2: It's probably open to everyone, I imagine, yeah.
5: I mean, so what we generally do is once um, the occupancy study is completed as sort of the first round, Uh, we hold a forum or we um, publish the report or it's always shared in a public forum because, you know, it's not about hoarding the information just to ourselves. It is about also informing the general public and it is about um, educating and sort of generally sharing what we learned as well. So through that forum and sort of sharing of the information, we also tend to um, meet, New people and also, again, forge new relationships. So, from there, sometimes um, new projects do come through. So, um, fortunately, quite a few times that has happened with um, typology like Opera House because it's a very niche typology. (laughs) Um, So, once that project was completed and the post-occupancy study was done, so then I guess that becomes a bit of a, a focal point of a case study for other theatre of um, performance, um, sort of performing arts um, typologies. So sometimes it does result in that.
3: And I've got a very small scale example where um, one of my clients, Lamazocco, um had heaps of pollen that was getting into one of their warehouses and they said, oh, can you come down and see how we're getting all this pollen into the warehouse? And then I went down there and then just realised their entire roof was leaking all across like through their gutters every single place where a gutter was joining onto a roof sheet and then they also had a ventilation strip at the ridge of their roof and when I just said let's just it's essentially open and they live on a street full of plane trees so every single time there was a a tiny bit of a breeze or um, rain all this pollen would be knocked off the trees and would just come inside their building and it was absolutely shocking and then when we said well there are a few things that we could do to mitigate this um, and we, we got a whole new project out of that where we did sort of go through this process of saying what can you do to a warehouse to actually make it comfortable for your staff and it's really quite strange because it's a, a very rudimentary building where we put in way more insulation than most people would put in because we decided not to actually line the ceiling. So it's just these giant mirrored pillows of insulation in this warehouse, but every time I go to that building, these warehouse uh, staff members like sort of seek me out and go, oh, man, I've been working in a warehouse for 30 years and this place is so comfortable. So (laughs) they don't have to wear a jacket in winter and it's just like those things are really lovely. You think, you know, you're going there just to look at why a roof might leak and then all of a sudden you get this other project out of it which might be quite rudimentary and not have the poetics of, of some of the things you're used to at uni, but then you get this wonderful human experience out of it and you can see that benefit. It's a, r- a real a daily felt experience, which is really nice. Mm.
1: I can offer an alternate response to that from an education perspective because it's a bit different in the education space where you're in the speculative realm and the building doesn't actually get built or may- maybe it might. Um, how do you actually measure the value of what you're doing? And I think for me, um, in some of the studies I've been doing with Indigenous partners, that has meant, well, have we listened to what these elders and communities have asked for? And how do you measure that? How do you know? And what I've learned is, how do I know that? Well, we've been invited back. So we've been, Stas and I have been working with Uncle Leonard Clark and the Framlingham community, Craveron community in the Western District. This year, I think it's the fourth year we've been running that studio. And so for me to question whether or not we have really valued what the client has wanted has been measured by that invitation back. So, you know, you can sort of think about it, think about post-occupancy in a lot of different ways um, beyond just the built form and how the occupants occupy that space.
2: Any other questions before we wrap up? All good. All right. Look, I think, again, you know, what a fantastic note to end on three very different, Um, approaches to kind of post-occupancy or intra-occupancy as we're all now going to call it. Um, All right. So thanks again to our panel. Um, Thanks. Thank
1: you. You're
0: listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.